0: Happy Palm Sunday. This begins, kicks off like probably the most holy week of Christendom, the Passion Week of Jesus. So many events in this last week are packed with the crucifixion on Friday, where Jesus died for our sins, and then we get to celebrate um, Easter Sunday, where he rose from the dead. Uh, So today is a, a message we just providentially landed in, as Pastor Ted has been taking us through the Gospel of Luke, we ended up on Palm Sunday. So if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we'll be studying verses 28 through 44. But I want to go back and kind of give you a good review of the parable of the minas uh, that Pastor Ted taught on last week, because it really kind of ties together, it leads into Palm Sunday and this story. So if we get a good context, then I think it'll help us to really grasp what's really taking place um, as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on a donkey. So the parable of the Midas, it begins, you know, in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 19. These are kind of, it's a significant statement. Now as they heard these things, he spoke... Another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So this is what kind of you know led Jesus to speak on the parable of the minors because the the disciples thought that the king kingdom of God would appear immediately. And so Jesus kind of had to kind of set him straight, because he's going to now. You know, in the Palm Sunday, he's going to ride in to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, and he's going to present himself as king. And they would expect him to establish the kingdom, right? the, The disciples were always anticipating that Jesus, the Messiah, would set up his physical kingdom on earth. Even after his death, resurrection, and prior to his ascension, You know, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the reason they thought is because in the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, it it, uh, predicted a conquering Messiah, as Pastor Ted shared last week. So it was natural for the disciples to expect to look forward to the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom. But as Pastor Ted also taught, the the Old Testament predicted a suffering Messiah. But it seems like the disciples didn't really get that bit, did they? They just concentrated on the conquering Messiah. And I don't blame them. There's passages in the Bible that I would rather skip over, like Philippians 3.10. To know Him and the power of His resurrection. We want that, right? Let's memorize that. The power of His resurrection. But it also says the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, Let's skip over that part, right? Let's go to the next part. Being conformed to his death. Oh, let's go back to the other one. You see, there's certain things that we grab a hold of. We're just human, right? So these positive things we want to lay hold on, and we kind of maybe don't lay hold so tightly of of the things that are kind of negative. Like, you will suffer persecution. (laughs) I don't want to memorize that verse. You know? So that's kind of the disciples. And so because of anticipation, Jesus taught this parable of the minas, and he gives in this parable kind of an overview of end times so that they understand. And so in the parable, verse 12, a nobleman a certain moment went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And so, of course, Jesus is the nobleman in this parable. And what he's saying is, there will be a time when I will be absent. I'm here now, but I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. And he said this to the disciples on various occasions. And one of the probably most familiar passages is in John chapter 14 verses 2 and 3 where Jesus said, in my father House, um, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So he's kind of, you know, sharing this because the kingdom, the physical kingdom, isn't going to be set up right now. I'm going to go, but I will return. And during this interval period... Jesus says there will be servants left to carry out his work. And this is one of my favorite passages actually in the Bible. It says, "Um, so he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to leave, but while I'm gone, you, my servants, carry on business. Business as usual. You're going to take the ministry forward. And that's what Pastor Ted um, kind of shared. This These minors represent the gospel. We've been entrusted the gospel. And we're to carry on the ministry, the business of Jesus in his absence. You know, early on in Christianity, during the Jesus movement, during that revival, there was an emphasis, the rapture is going to happen, you know. Israel became a nation and all that kind of thing. There was an excitement. There was a an buzz. Abuzz, and, you know, people would, you know, run up credit card debt. They would sell the farm, you know what I mean? You know, Jesus is coming back. But, you know, Jesus, that's not what Jesus taught us to do. He just said, you know, keep the farm. Keep doing business as usual. But use the resources and everything to carry and be faithful to the great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. During this interval period, there will be enemies. It says in verse 14, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so his citizens is a reference to the nation of Israel, who, generally speaking, course, there's always a remnant of believers, but generally speaking, the nation Israel nationally rejected Jesus as her Messiah. John 1.11, he came to his own, he came to Israel, and his own did not receive him. It was those in authority, those representatives of the religious system Of Judaism in Israel that rejected him. There's a prophecy in Psalm 118, verse 22, that Peter um, kind of shares about this. The stone Jesus, which the builders, the Jewish leaders, rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. So when the nobleman returns, when Jesus returns, he will deal with everybody very fairly. Um, Verses 16 through 19 in the parable refers to the rewards that the good stewards, the good servants will receive. When Jesus returns, those who have been faithful to carry on his business in his absence will be rewarded. Verses 20 through 26, it either refers to those who were um, presenting themselves as true servants but were proven to be imposters or will be those people Um, depart from me, I never knew you, Jesus referred to, or to those um, who were really servants but just kind of were not faithful to the call, to the Great Commission, to, to protect and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those people will be saved, and this is what Pastor Ted shared last week, 1 Corinthians 3.15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet through the fire. So we, Reliance Church, are going to be faithful with the commission, the great commission, with the call to um, protect and to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, he will judge his enemies upon his return. The noble man will come back, verse 20. But bring here those enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Jesus will return. And what we'll see in this story of the triumphal entry, we'll see how, um, how we have an opportunity to make ourselves right, to make peace with God before he comes back, before Jesus comes back. So in our story, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the preparation, Jesus' preparation. We'll look at his presentation. He's going to present himself. And then we'll look at Israel's rejection. So verses 28 through 34 speak of his preparation. So look at verses 28 and 29. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. So, he's getting close to Jerusalem. He's making his way there. Now as they get close, they're only about a mile or so out. And then verses 30 through 34, he sent th- the two disciples, go into the village opposite you, um, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So I don't suggest that you try this at home. You know, tried it with a guy with the Ferrari once. I said, hey, yo, throw me the keys. The Lord has need of it. No, I didn't do that. I always wanted to, but I'm not bold enough. But you can put yourself in the position of the disciples. You know, they're just like following these orders blindly. Okay, we'll do it, you know, and um, everything works out. But there's some significance here. There's, this passage is, uh, has two things. It's one, it's prophetic. And the other thing, it is um, significant. So firstly, the prophetic aspect. This slide here will show you in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, The daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a predictive prophecy out of the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. And if you ever get a chance just to go through Zechariah and meditate upon all the prophetic things concerning the Messiah, much of it has already been fulfilled at Jesus' first coming, but much more will yet be fulfilled at his second coming. And so this is a predictive prophecy. and, And these things are in the Old Testament. And this is what Matthew tries to do in his gospel. He's writing primarily to Jews. He's trying to show them how the Messianic... Prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus. So he's always referring them back to the Old Testament. This was done as it was spoken by the prophet. So this is a a predictive prophecy so they, they could recognize the Messiah when he showed up. Secondly, there is a significance that the Western mind might not get in this passage. It would be clear to the Eastern mind, but not to the Western mind. What do you think of when you think of a donkey? I think of Shrek. <laughs> and Eddie Murphy. Yo, donkey. Donkey. You know? Or I think of um, Mules for Sister Sarah. For those of us that remember the Clint Eastwood movie and uh, Shirley MacLaine riding on the... You know, you know, it's not a glorious picture. It's not a glorious picture. But the donkey in this time was a royal ride it was a regal mode of transportation listen to what Craig Keener says the Bible background commentary officials use donkeys for civil not military processions thus this test is not a triumphal entry in the sense of Roman triumphal processions of those of victory It is Jerusalem's reception of a meek and peaceful king. You see, later on, when Jesus comes back the second time, what's he going to be riding? He's going to be riding a white horse. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You see, a horse is a beast of war. You know, if you, you I mean, it, I love horses. They're an amazing creature. I'm scared to death of them. You know, I ride them, but I'm scared of them. There's so much power. And when they go to battle, you know, they know, they sense, and they start getting restless, and they're, you know, they're chomping at the bit, ready to enter battle. They're a beast of war. And when Jesus comes back the second time, he's going to be riding on a white horse to make war, to establish his kingdom, to defeat his enemies. But this occasion, Jesus is on a regal ride, but it's a regal ride of peace. He's presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the Messiah, as the king, to offer them a peace treaty, if you will. To offer them a truce. To offer them the opportunity to recognize me for who I am. Bow your knee. Bow your knee to the king. And so his presentation, verses 35 through 40, if you look at 35 through 38, firstly, the king is hailed. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for the mighty works which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this first thing, they hailed their King. They cried to Jesus for the mighty works which they had seen, that they had witnessed. And I'm sure in this large crowd of people, there are many sincere believers. We know that Paul refers to 500 witnesses of the, of the resurrection that saw Jesus after, after he was raised from the dead. We know that in the, the upper room, the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers waiting for the promise of the Father, the the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So in this crowd, there are many sincere followers of Jesus, but I'm sure in this midst, there are a bunch of them that are only there because of what they saw. They wanted something from Jesus. They weren't really, um, they hadn't really recognized him as their king. In John chapter Six, it tells the story of when Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, right? You guys know the story. Very familiar. As a result of them being fed so well by Jesus, at that time it says that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Jesus dismissed his disciples, say, "Get in a boat, go to the other side." He handled the crowd because he didn't want the disciples getting caught up in this emotion. And then afterwards, he dismissed the crowd. He wasn't going to have them force him to be king just because he can provide food. Many people come to Jesus because they want a full belly. He's a good king. He'll give us what we need. Many people come to Jesus because they need a healing. And if God's will, he's a good king. He'll heal us. Ultimately, we'll all be healed in heaven. Many people come to Jesus because they need something. Many people come to Jesus just because of the social environment, maybe the entertainment aspect, see what God's doing and and witness it, but never engage in it. Some people want things from Jesus, but they never come to the place of realization that Jesus is the king. And that we, by choice, need to subject ourselves to his authority. We need to surrender to him as our personal Lord, as our sovereign. We need to give up our life. He purchased us. He's the Lord. Give up. Tap out. Surrender to God. And I think that some of these people that were in that crowd would be as we get later on in the week, Thursday and Friday, these would be the people that would be yelling crucify him crucify him. The sayings that the crowd were sh- were shouting, again I want to make sure that we understand this. Because everybody here, all these, the Jewish context, would understand that these are messianic prophecies that they, were, that they were singing, they were shouting out. Look on the screen. It says, Luke 19, 38 again, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then this is what Matthew writes. Uh, he says, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who Comes in the name of the Lord. And I'm sure that in this procession, I don't know how long it lasted. I wasn't there. I'm old, but not that old. This procession, there, all of these things would have been shot. And, may, and then you can look at Mark and, and, and John, who maybe has a different twist on it. But all of these things were were, were said. But David, or um, Matthew records, Son of David. Hosanna to the Son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan communicated to David the message that God gave him that through David's line, through his descendant, would come the Messiah. And he would reign, sit on the throne, and reign forever. So when they said, you know, Hosanna to the son of David... They recognized that this was a fulfillment of this messianic promise that was given to David, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This comes from Psalm 118. Again, on the screen, verses 25 and 26, it says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to give you a Greek lesson today. The Greek word for Hosanna. I think you guys can remember this one. It's Hosanna. You guys are are really good. But it's derived from a combination of Hebrew words that come from this passage. And in this passage, these Hebrew words are translated in Psalm 118, 25, Save now, I pray. Save now, I pray. So what they were saying on this procession, son of David, king, the Messiah, save now, I pray. Hosanna, now, save now. Now, Jesus was going to save, but not in the way that they may have thought. Save now, maybe to them at that moment was save us now from the Romans. Kick them out, let's defeat them, let's establish your kingdom on earth. But what Jesus was going to do first is he was going to save us from some worse enemies that we have. He was going to defeat the devil. He was going to disarm our enemy. He was going to defeat the world. I have overcome the world, Jesus said. He was going to defeat sin. The hideous thing that we all have. The thing that we all struggle with. He was going to defeat it. And ultimately, death. He was going to be raised from the dead. He was going to save now. He was going to go to the cross now. But I don't think they got it. But we get it, don't we? We get it. And we know that he will come back and he'll save us from all the external things. But first, he needed to save us from the the things that we really need saved from. And then he says, peace in heaven. A declaration that in heaven, there is a peace. In the heavenlies, there's a spiritual war going on, right? You guys all experienced that this morning. If you have children, the devil used them in your life. Yeah. Shut up and get in the car. We're going to church. whether do you like it or not? You know? No, that never happened in my house. A, there, but in heaven, his enemies have been casted out. He cast Satan out. You're out of here. So there's a peace in heaven. And this peace in heaven is what God desires to be on earth. Even he announced it at the birth of Jesus through the angel and through this host of angels. Luke chapter 2, 14. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace, goodwill towards men. Or as the New American Standard updated version says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. So th- there is peace in heaven. Get this. And there is a peace to be had, to be achieved on earth. is for people who... God is pleased with. Look at Emily right there. How could God not be pleased with them? Look at me. You know? <laughs> but we all know, as Godly, there is, he sinned once. One time she sinned. She married Darius. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> That's him under the bus right there. We all all know that we all have sinned. We've all sinned. We're not pleasing to God in and of ourselves. There's one man that was pleasing to God. This is my beloved son, he spoke of Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased. So how do we please God? We get in Christ. We get in Christ. In Christ... When we put our faith in the death, resurrection of Jesus, we now are in Christ and God looks at us in the righteousness of Christ and he said, this is now Rod, my beloved son. I am well pleased in him. Blows my mind. I don't feel it, but I accept it and I claim it in Jesus' name. So, there is a peace to be had. We can make peace with God. There's a peace in heaven... No enemies, and when you cast out the enemy within, when you stop rebelling, you make peace with God. You surrender to his lordship, and you have peace. Those of you who have not accepted Christ, you're still an enemy. You might say, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I just don't know. If you haven't chosen for him, then Jesus said, you've chosen against That is your choice. You're still against him. You're still in the enemy camp. And if, you're not, if you haven't surrendered, if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus as your king, as your sovereign, you are still an enemy. And this is what you can expect. You can expect a, a battle with God and he will defeat you. You cannot win. Do you understand that? You will not win. Doesn't matter what kind of atheist how smart they are or whatever, they're going to be confronted with God. They will not win. And one day, every knee will bow. I don't care who you are. I choose to do it now. Jesus is my Lord. I, I, I recognize it. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes and all of that kind of thing. But by the grace of God, I want to surrender my life. Oh, man, when you get older. Darius, he help me out. No, it's just, it's just He wouldn't help me now. I just... (laughs) So the Jewish leaders attempt to quiet the crowd, verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent... The stones would immediately cry out. Why did they want to rebuke? So why did they want to silence the crowd? G. Campbell Morgan says this. Then Luke tells us that the hostile Pharisees and rulers were angry with these men. Why were they angry at what they were saying? Because it would only mean one thing. The complete recognition Of the Messiahship of Jesus. And so they said. Jesus. You see what's happening. This is your opportunity to step in. And silence the crowd. Make it known. You're not really the Messiah. Make sure that they understand it. Stop this. This is kind of blasphemous. Was taking place. But Jesus wouldn't do it. Because he was the king. He was the king. Jesus. At this time. Kind of incited this event to take place as I share other times jesus would send the, the crowd away again listen to what g campbell morgan said he had never done anything to provoke a demonstration over and over again we see him withdrawing from the crowds when the majority of the crowds seemed to be in favor of him once they tried to make him king he sent them away declining kingship when they offered it to him but now he deliberately chose and arranged to enter the city thus as a king. So what Jesus was saying, I'm not going to tell them to stop. Because they're recognizing the truth. They're realizing the truth. But then, of course, Israel's rejection. Verse 41. Now as they drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And this word wept doesn't mean, you know, like... He got a little emotion. The word is that he sobbed. He wailed aloud, as the Strong's defines that word. What took place is Jesus knew what was, taking, what was happening there. He was presenting himself as the Messiah. He realized that nationally they would reject him. And therefore, they were going to suffer the consequences They were going to be judged. They were going to be destroyed. And it broke his heart. And he grieved over the city. And then verse 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make, listen to this, that make for your peace. You could have had peace. You could have achieved peace on earth. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. And so this was, again, prophetically predicted by the prophet Daniel. Look at the slides. I'm going to run through this quick. But I just want to show you this. It's an amazing prophecy. Um, Daniel chapter 9. 70 weeks are determined for your people. Who are Daniel's people? Jew, the Jews. Come on. And for your holy city. What was Daniel's holy city? What's that? Nineveh, you said, Darius? No, it wasn't Nineveh. No, I just... You know, I just you know, got you back again. You should have helped me up, man. No, of course, it's Jerusalem. So 70 weeks are, are determined, you know, and to... Um, finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to, to anoint the most holy. So, d- 70 weeks to wrap it all up, right? And so, um, the 70 weeks, depending on the context, is either weeks of, of days or weeks of years, Um, It's literally, in the Hebrew, 77s. It's the same in Hungarian. I speak Hungarian, some Hungarians. So the the word for weak is hate, and the word for um, seven is hate. So it's just kind of the same idea, depending on the context. And obviously, it's 490 years that are given to Daniel's people, the Jews, and to the holy city. So 490 years in total. Now, in verse 25, it says... Now there, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again, and then a mention, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So in uh, Ezra one, Cyrus gives permission for you know, the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. But that isn't the commandment that he's speaking about because it has to do with the walls. What he's talking, this is a reference to when King Artaxerxes gave the command to allow Nehemiah to return, to rebuild Jerusalem, and to rebuild the wall. It's broken up into seven weeks and 62 weeks, seven weeks, 49 years, probably a reference to the time it took To rebuild Jerusalem. We know that it only took 52 days. To rebuild the wall. But I'm sure it took much longer. To rebuild Jerusalem. And then. um, The 62 weeks. 434 years. So. If you total those up. It would be 483 years. From the going forth of the command. To rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. Until the Messiah. Comes. And Sir Robert Anderson, he was a detective in Scotland Yard. He received a knight. He was knighted for his service um, after his retirement. But he developed a book, This Coming Prince, and he formulated, you know, and, and investigated this, put his investigative work to use. For biblical purposes. And he determined, if you can get the book, This Coming Prince, on the 14th of March, 4, uh, 445 BC, is when Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild the wall. He determined that it was the 6th of April, um, AD 32, that Christ presents himself as the Messiah to Israel in our story here. The intervening period, according to the Roman calendar, 476 years, it's not the 483 years, but 476 years and 24 days. 476 times 365 is 173,740. You add in the 24 days, you add in for leap years, and you come to a total of 173,880 days. So from the going forth of that command until Messiah the Prince would be 173,880 days. Now, the 69 weeks are prophetic years, which are 360 days. They weren't, they didn't live by the Roman calendar then. The Roman wasn't there yet, right? So the Roman calendar came later. It was a different calendar, prophetic calendar, So um, 69 times 7, 483 times 360, you come out to 173,880 days. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he presented himself as king. And then he said, if you had known, even you especially in your day, to the day. Had they understood that, if they had done their calculations, they would have kind of expected him to be riding in on a donkey on that day. But they they missed that bit. And on this day, Jesus offered Israel into a peace agreement. He said, cease hostilities. Lay down your arms. Surrender. Surrender. To the king of kings and the Lord of lords. They rejected him. They could have had peace. But they didn't. And Jesus is offering the same opportunity to us. Cease from your rebellion. You know, there may be things that you've given over to the Lord. And there may be things that you're hanging on. And that doesn't work. God wants everything. Here's the conditions that Jesus gives us, and they're not negotiable. You can't come to the, there's not a negotiating table on this. It's not like a a, a peace agreement between Israel and and Egypt where they can negotiate something. Jesus has given the conditions, and you take it or leave it. You can't impose on this deal. You need to confess Jesus as your king. You need to confess Jesus as Lord. You need to lay down your weapons in complete surrender to Jesus because He deserves it. He's your creator. He created you. And you're going to rebel against your creator? You can't win. You'll be defeated. Verses 43 and 44. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. This was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus came and besieged the city of Jerusalem, sacked it, burned it, and destroyed the temple to steal the gold, throwing every stone down. That's why Jesus cried. That's why he was weeping. He knew that they would reject him. He knew what would happen as a result of their rejection. This was also predicted by Daniel the prophet in chapter 9, verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So Messiah being cut off, that's a reference to um, his execution. The Messiah will be executed. They should have known that. But not for himself. Jesus did not die for anything that he did. He died for our sins. He was executed for our sins. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So people, I just want you to see, like all this is laid out. Predictive prophecy, it will be fulfilled. God sees everything, and he is returning. Do you live with expectation at the return of Jesus to this earth? He's going to set his foot down at the Mount of Olives where he is right now. He's going to return. He's going to conquer. And he's going to set his foot down in the Mount of Olives. It will split. He will establish himself as the king of the earth at that time. There's one week left for the nation of Israel. we fulfilled 16 items. There's one week left. Verse 27 of Daniel 9. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring it into sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So the 69 week has been fulfilled. We're still waiting for this final week. This final week is known as the tribulation period. Jesus will come back. And at the end of it, and establish his millennial kingdom on the earth. In between now, the 69th and the 70th week, God is operating through the church. See, God, you know, he operated through Israel. Then they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So it's like God turned from Israel and turned over here and began to work through the church. The church will be raptured prior to the final week, the tribulation period. So God will then, you know, take the church out of the earth. We'll have a great feast in heaven, wedding feast of the Lamb will be happening. And then he'll turn himself back to the nation of Israel. And he'll complete, wrap things up with the nation of Israel. At the end of it, Jesus will come riding on the white horse We will come riding with Him, and we will reign and rule with Him in the earth, those who have bent their knee now. And it's only because of His great grace and love that God is withholding the judgment for the earth. His wrath is being stayed because of His love. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that we should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why Jesus is holding on right now, that we all would come to repentance. I got saved in 1985. I'm glad he didn't come in 1984. I'd be hot right now. How many people got saved in the last five years? None of you? All right, a few of you. Aren't you glad he didn't come six years ago? You know? He's patient. He's patient. And the opportunity, the the offer still is going out. Be reconciled unto God. Make peace with God. You still have opportunity. The the peace treaty is still on the table. It's not negotiable, but you can come and sign it anytime you want. You can make peace with your creator. You can be saved. You can miss out on the battle that's coming when Jesus comes and he defeats his enemies. You don't have to fight that fight. You can be on the side of the victor. You cannot win. You cannot win. Your knee will bow. It'll be either bow right before you're sent to hell, or it'll bow now. And then we will be able to be ushered in and welcomed into the kingdom of God. Amen?